This episode is a special presentation of my dissertation approved by Professor Frank D. Machia. Dr. Frank Machia is an Associate Director of the Center for Pentecostal and Charismatic Studies at Bangor University in Wales and a Professor of Christian Theology at Vanguard University, California. With a Master of Divinity from Union Theological Seminary at Columbia University, New York, and a Doctor of Theology from the University of Basel, Switzerland, Professor Machia remains one of theology's most prolific voices, continuing to lead the ongoing conversation of interdisciplinary theology forward. At Basel, Machia pursued historical and systematic theology with a special emphasis on modern theology, especially the theology of Karl Barth. His dissertation was awarded the Jacob Burkhardt Prize, jointly granted by the University of Basel and the Jacob Burkhardt Foundation. His work as a theologian was birthed not only from within the academy, but also from his location in the Pentecostal movement. Thusly, he has a joint appointment with Bangor University of Wales and Vanguard University of Southern California, which connects to his Pentecostal denomination, the Assemblies of God. Machia has served as past president of the Society for Pentecostal Studies, as well as, for more than a decade, editor of the Society's journal, NUMA. He also chaired the Trinitarian team during the six-year Trinitarian Oneness Pentecostal Dialogue. He was recently elected to receive the Lifetime Achievement Award by the Society for Pentecostal Studies and was awarded an Honorary Doctorate of Divinity from the Pentecostal Theological Seminary in Cleveland, Tennessee, which is the leading seminary for the Pentecostal denomination, the Church of God. To have had Dr. Machia as my professor was nothing short of an honor and a privilege. His impact on my learning and activism will always be proof to me that God knows my needs in prayer, and that He often meets my needs through people. Doubtless, He is one of the greatest men of God I have ever met. So, to Professor Machia, I say thank you from the bottom of my heart, and many blessings. Please find all sources for my dissertation in the episode page link, which you can find in the episode description. Before I begin, there will be these three words that you will hear throughout this reading, which I want to define from the outset. Eschatology is a fancy word for end-time literature. Pericope is a section or defined passage of scripture. And exegesis is basically the theological version of the scientific method, where a theologian or researcher investigates a set hypothesis to see if the literary, historical, and archaeological evidence support it, reject it, or if the hypothesis needs further amendment. Thank you, and enjoy this presentation called Spirit of Lawlessness. Spirit of Lawlessness The essence of Apostle Paul's eschatology was that certain events had to take place before the second coming or return of Christ, which is called the Perusia. Until those things happened, the Perusia could not be declared imminent. Paul was saying that the key event that must take place prior to Jesus' return is the rise of the Antichrist, also known as the Spirit of Lawlessness. With all of the interest and fascination, around the Antichrist, there has been much speculation, research, and evidence to try and find out who this Antichrist figure is. Both archaeological and historical evidence support scripture, depicting multiple Antichrists throughout history. I therefore believe that since this is a spirit, the Antichrist is not defined by one sole person, but rather a multi-generational, autocratic system, 
a series of dictators seeking specifically world power through or involving the exploitation of God and or God's people. Such a system goes through multiple practice rounds of improving autocratic rises until a final culmination results in an authoritarian attempt that throws the entire globe out of order, not just one country or continent. I will therefore demonstrate that world order as we once knew it before the pandemic has been irreparably altered by a spirit of lawlessness with an endgame that is catastrophic at best. This is the thesis of this investigation. I will uphold said thesis through exegetical analysis and theological interpretation. By the end, I hope to effectively challenge the Church to be discerning of and actively resist this spirit of lawlessness. My pericope is 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3-10, through 10, a portion of one of two letters discovered to be written by Paul to the nascent Church in Thessalonica. In the first part of this presentation, I will conduct a thorough analysis of the context, genre, and composition of the pericope, concluding the first half with a summary of the evidence. The second half will begin with my theological interpretation of the Antichrist based on exegesis, contrasting the spirit of lawlessness from the spirit of Christ. This contrast will serve as an eschatological warrant for the Church's active role in exposing the Antichrist movement at the core of global turmoil known today as white Christian nationalism. While the world is under attack by a much larger autocratic network for democratic territory and or power, white Christian nationalism has been the stamp of justification for autocrats, dictators, or strongmen, deceiving many into complicity, whether by willful ignorance or outright participation in abetment. Upon the closure of this presentation with a call to theological activism against this ongoing threat, I hope to inspire a difficult courage in the recipients of this dissertation a courage that will stop recipients from looking up at the sky for the end times and start looking in their own homes, neighborhoods, states, country, and world. Turn on your television or smart device, and just about every news organization will tell you we are living in apocalyptic times or the last days. But we need not over- nor under-spiritualize the eschaton, or else we endanger ourselves like the Pharisees of missing God's truth in plain sight. I begin this first section by justifying my delineations and major sources. As Pauline's structure of most of his letters involve an introduction or a brief greeting, the first two verses were not included in the pericope. Stopping at 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 10 was decided because it indicates another shift in this portion of the letter, as the subject moves from the Antichrist to the deceived followers that perish with him upon Christ's return. Though the letter is an epistle, this pericope is a prophetic narrative within the complete text. Jean Green, Gordon Fee, and Harold Honer are the three major sources from which I have drawn research for the exegetical portion of this presentation. As for the political and psychological research which helps form my theological interpretation, I have relied upon Professor George H. Stanton, Malcolm Nance, Rachel Maddow, Ruth Ben-Giot, as well as legal evidence of the January 6th Committee's conclusive investigation. All of these are widely respected researchers and or professionals in their respective fields. What I remain astounded by is that I find theological, political, and psychological researchers all pointing at the same monster, addressing it by a different name, as is relative to their field. What the theologian has identified as the Antichrist 
the U.S. Departments of Justice and Homeland Security have called it, a current threat to democracy, and psychologists have called it the antisocial strongman. So if one were to ask me, well, which one of these perspectives are correct? Then the objective of this presentation is to answer yes and argue accordingly. In trying to relieve a fairly new church of some panic brought about by disinformation, in 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 3, the beginning of the pericope, Paul reminds them of sound doctrine he has already taught them, providing some further clarification. In the next verse, drawing on verbiage from Daniel 11, Paul characterizes the Antichrist, or the quote-unquote son of perdition. Quote-unquote and now of verse 6 indicates a defining event between the receipt of this letter and a previous occasion where the church was unclear or unaware of who the identity of the Antichrist was. But this defining event does not highlight the acquisition of said epiphany or insight for the Thessalonians, but rather highlights the reasons why the withholder character of this pericope is withholding the Antichrist, which is so that, quote, he might be revealed in his time, end quote. Now that they understand why, verse 7 identifies what is presently happening so that Paul can distinguish that from what has not happened yet. Only until verse 8 does Paul begin speaking about events that are purely future-based or have not yet happened, including the core subject of this part of the letter, the parousia. Verse 9 serves as an encouraging role in this letter, as the church had been under persecution of those, quote-unquote, that perish, labeled in verse 10. Furthermore, the Thessalonians did not want to be mistakenly deceived by the Antichrist as the unbelieving had. Therefore, Paul had to really ground their faith. Finally, Paul explains why those who will be deceived by the Antichrist will perish, quote, because they received not the love of the truth, end quote, which was a sound assurance to the Thessalonians' faith. I dare even add that the Thessalonians' panic was technically a good sign because they could have taken the false doctrine and refused the truth just as the unbelieving had done. Deep down, the Thessalonians knew something was not right. Though the information presented seems rather straightforward, there is clearly some inside information the Thessalonians had from Paul that we presently have never recovered. Therefore, we are left in the dark, as using speculation and guesswork to fill in the missing gaps would not be very helpful. What we can do is examine the information given and then analyze the meaning in more abstract terms. This way we can rightly interpret and glean helpful insight without violating the original context. Disclosing any biases or assumptions that have the potential to color my perspective throughout this investigation should be previewed first for accountability. This presentation consists of theological, historical, political, legal, and psychological research. Even as a Christian theologian, my duty is to present the facts of this investigation, not to ensure the image or otherwise reputation of Christianity keeps a pretty face. If there is corruption to be called out, I will. If not, so be it. Historically, I am biased toward both the African-American and woman's experience. However, no one's history ought to be viewed through the lens of another's, at least not for an objective investigation. As a registered independent voter, I lean left, However, I do not find myself favoring leftist or rightist ideology, as both have extremist tendencies and room for improvement. Even still, I will not ignore reality to suit my political or religious needs. Legal expertise is not my forte, therefore I rely heavily on legal annotation and interpretation. Nevertheless, I still take responsibility for being able to read and understand law for myself. 
I hold a master's in counseling, therefore I cannot help but notice psychological trends in the research. Nevertheless, this is a theological presentation with psychological insight, not vice versa. Historical and Cultural Contexts Both history and scripture show that there were many antichrists. However, in regards to scripture, the rise of the Antichrist has always been connected to some form of destruction or desecration of the Jewish temple. Daniel foresaw Antiochus Fort Epiphanes' desecration of the temple and likely pulled on imagery from Job and characterizations from Deuteronomy 13. The Gospels and Joannine letters recall an account of Jesus' end-time prophecy, which included the Antichrist, likely foreseeing future Emperor Titus's destruction of the second temple. Paul essentially restated the same prophecy about two decades before it actually happened. The author of Revelation also saw two beasts, definitely drawing on Daniel's imagery, but also likely that of Leviathan and Behemoth in Job 40 and 41. This beast blasphemes God, his name, the temple, and likely the believers who had already died. He could have been implicating the emperor at that time, Domitian of Rome. This association of the Antichrist to the disrespect of the temple reflects accurate prophecies in history regarding the literal temple of Jerusalem. But it could also implicate the global church and even world order, as it was shaped by the direct influence of the church. This would reach back to the commission of Christ, his charge to the disciples to grow the church all over the world through discipleship. And by extension, it would speak to the sovereign impact of God on the world. This view then introduces us to political implications in these Antichrist prophecies. As God impacted the world via the Church, Scripture always portrayed the Antichrist as seeking to dominate the world via the symbol of the Church, the Jewish Temple. Therefore, in examining the pericope, where the connection between the Antichrist and the Temple is also present in 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 4, this is something that must have weighed heavily on Paul's heart. Quote, the temple, of course, is the one in Jerusalem, which by this time had already been desecrated three times. Antiochus in the 3rd century BCE, by Pompey in the 1st century BCE, and by the Roman Emperor Caligula in 41 CE, quote. Fee was initially not certain if Paul knew whether or not the temple would actually be desecrated again and could have simply been using this reference to describe the Antichrist's deification. However, if we look at the pre-Christian versus the Christian Antichrist scripture, the detail of using quote-unquote signs and wonders to deceive is a newly added feature introduced by Jesus as accounted in Matthew. Paul used this newly added feature, which means he had to have ultimately gotten this source of information from Jesus. Now, while it is fair to criticize that Paul may simply have been reciting rather than knowingly prophesying, just by the fact that Paul pulled from Jesus denotes that Paul did believe the temple would be desecrated or destroyed again, because Paul believed that Jesus had the word of God in his mouth. Paul might have been uncertain about the future, but he believed in Jesus Christ. Even with this dark knowledge, Paul strengthened the church still. Ultimately, Fee did come to the same conclusion, except by the fact that Paul knowingly adopted Daniel language, despite that he was quoting Jesus, as evidenced by the use of deceptive, quote, signs and wonders. Quote, Paul reveals his understanding of that passage as referring to an event that was yet to come, as a reduplication of one of the truly awful tragedies in Jewish history, when Antiochus did this very thing, End quote. Now we shall examine the context of the pericope. 
so that we may learn how Paul fortified a new and anxious church for the inevitable turmoil that lied ahead. Literary and Rhetorical Contexts The pericope is a portion of a letter from Paul to the church founded, most likely by Timothy, in Thessalonica. There was high interest and confusion surrounding the return of Christ at this church, which prompted Paul's letter. Ultimately, Paul wanted to do more than clarify their confusion, but also correct their troublesome behaviors in the city. It was while setting the record straight on the coming of Christ that Paul lays out his eschatology, which contains the single event that must precede Christ's return, the rise of the Antichrist. It is just interesting to see, for a rather experienced pastor, the method Paul chose to encourage a new, anxious, and fumbling church. We shall explore this achievement in greater detail. Immediate Context As previously stated, Paul wrote this letter to the Thessalonian church to encourage them in their many afflictions. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 acknowledges the Thessalonians' persecution and that ultimately their persecutors, being unbelieving, would be punished by God and also eternally damned. In the succeeding passage, Paul confesses his own afflictions and persecutions, soliciting prayer from the saints. Finally, he commands righteous living by following his own example and being separate from the disorderly. The misconduct Paul heard reports of was that some Thessalonians stopped working, burdening the brethren, being misled by the false claim that Christ's return was imminent anyway. Paul was careful to conclude by reminding the church to correct the disorderly to bring shame, but as brethren, not enemies. The flow of the preceding passage into the pericope is very smooth. It serves as a background text and does help to expound the pericope. The passages all work together to address the most pressing needs of the Thessalonians, safeguard them from false doctrine, and correct troublesome behavior in the church with grace and love. Larger Context Although it is unclear how the disinformation was generated in the church, it clearly left the church in panic and confusion. Regardless, Paul's intended effect was to encourage the church in their persecutions and affliction, as well as to exhort them to work so as to not become a burden on the church. The chief characteristic of the Thessalonian community addressed in the pericope was their being persecuted by, quote-unquote, the perishing, which were the unbelieving Gentiles, who reviled them for not adhering to their religious cults or customs, as conformity was a primary social norm back in those times. Macedonia was a Hellenic hub. Quote, Archaeological evidence has indicated that a number of religious cults were active in Thessalonica at this time, cults devoted to such deities as Isis, Osiris, Serapis, and Cabarrus, along with Jewish synagogues. Because those who became Christian had to abandon their former religious practices, adherents of any of those cults would have been incensed when former participants now refused further participation. Given the drive to conformity in the Greco-Roman world, any such nonconformity to general practices would be met with hostility. End quote. During the time this letter was written, about 50 to 52 CE, Claudius was persecuting the Christians, and Nero was steadily on the rise through the political jungle. No doubt, it was a frightening time to be alive as a Christian. But Paul and Timothy strengthened the Thessalonians often. There is something like an itinerary of five eschatological events that Paul provides, thanks to the help of his clarifications. In this itinerary, there are at least three understood characters— the Antichrist, or son of perdition, he who now withholds, 
and what withholds. First, the itinerary technically begins with verse 7, where, quote, the mystery of iniquity doth already work. However, this verse also notes that the completion of this mystery will result in the one who withholds being, quote, taken out of the way. So verse 7 is rather hybrid in nature, containing both present and future manifested events. This indicates that he who now withholds is indeed presently being restrained, but it is unclear by whom, although not critically important for us in the present. For the second end-time event, set in the future, he who now withholds will either retire or be forcibly removed, revealing the Antichrist. Next, there will be some sort of apostasy, or apostasia, as the Thessalonians understood it. Four, there will be another repeat of the abomination of desolation, per Daniel's language. And finally, the Antichrist will deceive with signs and miracles, making wickedness successful on a global scale, if he is truly able to, quote, exalt himself above all that is called God, end quote. Canonical Context it could be possible that the author of Revelations incorporated or referenced language from this account of Paul's, but it is also possible he could have come to the same conclusion using the same source as Paul had used. Being part of a later written letter, the pericope was most definitely impacted by a lot of themes and images of earlier scripture, both Old and New Testament. Therefore, it has a dependent relationship with other similar passages, and it harmonizes quite well with many of the other passages, but three in particular— Daniel 11, Matthew 24, and Revelation 13, which had not yet been written. Given that the recipients of this pericope were mainly Gentiles, as opposed to the other similar passages, the harmony matters less for this particular scripture as it would be for any of the others. However, the harmony still matters insofar as it does not stand in tension with similar passages despite that the recipient is of a different people group. Genre and Form the genre of the document within which the pericope is situated is an epistle or letter, specifically an expository encouragement letter with eschatological and poetic form. For the first century Jew, poetry was often presented as abecedaria, also known as acrostics, songs, and parallelisms, also known as thought rhymes, and it was meant to deliver metrical prose structured in verses using symbols and imagery to teach praise, confess, lament, or, as in Paul's case, encourage. The prose the author employs in this pericope could be considered a prophecy, with a poetic emphasis in order to achieve the encouragement objective, stipulated in 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 5-7. Based on the rich history of poetic usage in first-century culture, even though the Thessalonians were Gentiles, they would have understood not to take the poetic text literally. As symbolic language, poetry was a technique used to emphasize a certain feeling or concept to strengthen rhetorical delivery. The pericope is structured rather forensically, including an introduction, a narration, or relative events, which is not to be confused with narrative, a thesis, an argument, a refutation, and an appeal. From beginning to end, the pericope moves like a chain reaction, where one event cannot begin until the previous is triggered or finished. Serving as a specifying clarity, the pericope is not revealing new information, but rather making older information clear. It is the older information which is lost to us presently and is considered inside information to the direct recipients only.
The pericope is actually the beginning of the letter body. Furthermore, the entirety of the pericope serves as an answer to eschatological confusion caused by disinformation. More specifically, 2 Thessalonians 2 verses 1 to 2 serve as an invocation and a clear introduction into the letter body. Verses 3 and 4 are points of clarification, addressing the very confusion. While this is not technically new information, Paul is using previously provided information to correct any incorrect understandings. Verse 5 is a rebuke and a point of frustration for Paul, as he expects the church to handle the doctrine of the faith more responsibly. Verse 6 is also clarification, but more so for review and not necessarily correction. Verse 7 is also a review of prior information, but feeds into the next verse, which is to inspire hope in the Thessalonian church as a cure to their anxieties. Verses 8 to 10 are words of encouragement and assurance that the Thessalonians will not be deceived and that ultimately Christ is watching over them and will save them in the last day. Detailed Analysis Overall, the pericope communicates assurance and encouragement by clarifying any eschatological misunderstandings. Key terms and images include that which describe the Antichrist, such as man of sin, son of perdition, and that wicked in verse 8, which is transliterated lawless one. Another key image is actually the temple, even though Paul and the Thessalonians understood it differently. Also, there is the terms and images related to lawlessness itself, such as mystery of iniquity, which is transliterated, the hidden truth of lawlessness, and also the working of Satan in verse 9. Finally, terms and images of Christ are brief and yet poignant. Only key images and terms like brightness, son of perdition, and that wicked are ones whose meaning may have to be explained by looking elsewhere in Scripture. Though the other language is reminiscent and similar to other Scripture, it is not verbatim. They are quite original. Even for the three aforementioned, there is not much else to be gleaned from other scripture. There are some profound literary devices used in this pericope, however, including a simile in verse 4, personification in verse 8, and even irony in verses 9 to 11, because the lying Antichrist will find his followers perishing under an even stronger delusion of God. The effect the simile develops is actually a polysemic nature to verse 4, allowing the Thessalonians to hear that word through a political lens, though it meant something more personal to Paul. Even the sources Paul used, pulling from both Jesus and Daniel, ended up producing a polysemic nature for this part of the pericope. Personifying the power, nature, or attributes of God was rather common for stronger delivery, which was appropriate for addressing or referring to the Most High in written form. Even the Thessalonians would have understood this on a generic level. Paul was quite adept at starting the letter body with the Antichrist and his successes, almost as to hype him up, just so that the decisive blow of Christ's return, the real Perusia, has a greater effect on the readers, quite literally creating a sense of poetic justice to the text. For the purpose of this letter, the mood of the text is stressed or tense. Paul is intentional in creating a sense of tension in the pericope to make Christ's return all the more desirable and hoped for. It strengthens the faith of the Thessalonians by increasing their hope and expectancy in Christ. Intertextuality How did the Thessalonian church receive Paul's eschatology in light of their social-political situation with the Roman and Jewish oppression and resistance? 
This is a profoundly important question, primarily due to the fact that Paul was a Jew. The Thessalonians were Gentiles, the same Gentiles whose small, dedicated outside portion of the temple's court was so desecrated by Jews that it was relegated to effectively a pawn shop. Also, the Thessalonians are not the same Gentiles who, as they made their pilgrimage to their smaller corner of the same temple, had to wait behind, give deference to, and sometimes even be ill-treated by Jews. This Macedonian town previously worshipped the Roman, Greek, and Egyptian idols. To their credit, their conversion did go over a lot more smoothly than others. However, their entire experience with the Hebrew God as a culture is brand new. How is it possible that the Thessalonians could have received this Jewish eschatology the same way as Paul did for himself? It is safe to say they did not. Nevertheless, Paul still knew his audience and never used historical or cultural references ignorantly. We must consider the possibility that Paul indeed meant for them to receive this reference in a very different way than what he knew himself. One other insight Fee provides is that, quote, in secular Greek, the manner in which Paul trusted the Gentile Christians to understand, the word apostasia was used to refer to a political or military revolt, a rebellion against a power or deity to whom one was not committed. End quote. What Paul understood in a more personal way, the Thessalonians took the rebellion of the Antichrist as something happening in the political realm. This would also explain why Paul used a reference to the temple as a simile and not a direct statement. Did the Thessalonians know about the Daniel and Matthew scripture, or otherwise connect them to Paul's eschatology? This is also an important question, considering the Thessalonians understood this through a political lens. As a fairly new church to the faith and to the Hebrew God, they could not have been familiar with the reference. However, if the Thessalonians knew about Jesus' words when he made the same statement, which could have been passed along by word of mouth, they might have recognized the reference Jesus made to Daniel. Paul may have used Jesus' prophecy to them as an introduction to eschatology, which would have had to have been before the letters to the Thessalonians were written. Since scripture was usually read by Jewish rabbis and priests, it was unlikely that the Gentile Thessalonians had direct access to the Old Testament scripture. Nevertheless, since Paul chose the Greek word apostasia, which was a political term for the Greeks, it could be possible that it was safe for the Thessalonians to miss the Daniel reference. Had Paul emphasized verse 4 was an Old Testament reference, the Thessalonians might have been discouraged or deterred from viewing this with a political lens according to their own situation. This further denotes Paul's intentionality as a Jewish pastor addressing a Gentile church. Next, we must understand the dynamic amongst the three characters in the pericope. Excluding the inevitability of Christ and his return, it appears that there are three identified characters. He who now withholds, what withholds, and the Antichrist. Clearly, Paul has demonstrated great intentionality in the text thus far. Therefore, we can trust no wording in this pericope is careless. If what is written is exactly what Paul meant to convey, then the ambiguity of what or who exactly removes he who now withholds out of the way is also intentional. And Green argues that this is actually written in active voice and not passive as was common in writing style of that era. Therefore, he who now withholds would willingly step aside himself, making way for the Antichrist. Now, in the pericope, Christ is portrayed as both supernatural and divine, but the other three characters are just conveyed as supernatural. 
With this conveyance being intentional, this actually forces us to reconsider the assumptions about the three characters. Satan and his demons are portrayed in Scripture as supernatural because they are spirits, but they are not divine as God and his angels. The understanding here, therefore, is that none of the three identified characters are positive forces. They are all negative or demonic forces. With the three-character team secured, I shall connect the similarities of this pericope to Daniel 11, Matthew 24, and Revelation 13. Let us first examine the Antichrist as the head of this team. The exposure of the Antichrist is a part of the wicked strategy, not some kind of a bust in his operation. Though this operation seems to rely on three moving parts in the form of our characters, the Antichrist is no doubt at the top of this triangle, as he is in Revelation 13, Matthew 24, and Daniel 11, specifically Daniel 11, verses 36 to 45. As scholars believe, this is actually a final break in the chapter, where Antiochus's career ends and that of the eschatological Antichrist begins. The comparison amongst all passages is relatively straightforward or evident. The Antichrist is a central character in the three-character team that hijacks world power prior to Christ's return. Secondly, we will examine the neuter character, what withholds. On one level, one could see this force as unintelligent, yet influential and deceptive. Such a force would be a system of misinformation via word and or letter according to... 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 2. A system of misinformation via word or letter is often referred to as a propaganda campaign, a fascist tactic of strongmen to set people groups against one another and increase their appeal in the general public. Green argues that, quote, it is not a power that restrains the man of lawlessness, but rather one that exercises his power on behalf of Satan. This is a power that seizes or possesses and may imply some form of demonic possession, end quote which the Thessalonians would have been very familiar with. Green also argues, quote, that this false inspiration that prefigures the revelation of the man of lawlessness is the same one that is responsible for the doctrinal confusion of the Thessalonians in the first place. Understood in this way, the role of what withholds would be similar to that of the false prophet in Revelation 13, end quote. But on this point, I disagree. Seeing that the false prophet's role in other passages includes the ability to deceive with miracles, I have a counter-argument to this point in the next paragraph to minimize confusion. However, Green did argue that the mystery of iniquity was a cult anticipating the rise of the Antichrist, thereby implicating what withholds as a cult head or leader. Here in 2 Thessalonians 2 verses 6 to 7, Paul could have been implicating the imperial cult. The Thessalonians may have been more likely to understand the mystery of iniquity as the imperial cult and maybe even what withholds as the dictatorship Rome, seeing that they had received this with a political lens anyway. A cult is defined as a system of religious devotion toward a figure or object by a group of people, and often members are made to, as in coerced or brainwashed or otherwise willingly, become slaves of the cult leader. So what is interesting about the speaking image in Revelation 13 is that it forces a brand on all so that no one can survive without it. Even though this passage wasn't written yet, to the Thessalonians, such branding was a derogatory sign of slavery or belonging to a master, like a cult. 
I therefore argue that what withholds mirrors the image of the beast of Revelation 13, which is an abomination in and of itself. I argue this because the Matthew 24, 15 Daniel reference points back to how Antiochus forced all to worship, most likely Zeus, in the temple and ordered his army to kill all who refused, as was typical of national enslavement by dictator at that time. If one wanted to survive without revolting against the dictator, like the Mattathias faction of Jews at the time, they had to worship and accept the image in the cult of Zeus, like the Menelaus faction of Jews at the time did, which sounds similar to the image's power in Revelation 13. There is another character in the Matthew 24 prophecy, besides the false Christs and the false prophets, which is the abomination of desolation, listed in Matthew 24 verse 15 which causes discriminatory persecution or great tribulation to pressure true believers into deception, just like in Daniel 11. In the pericope, Paul implicates the neuter character what withholds as the false inspiration tempting God's people into an anti-God cult via deception and false doctrine. This attempt to fracture the church by persecution mirrors the temple desolation tactic of Daniel 11, the abomination of Matthew 24:15, which led to discriminatory persecution, and the Revelation 13 image of the beast, which killed all who refused to be enslaved to the beast symbolic of the Antichrist. Lastly, we will review the third character, he who now withholds. Although Green believed that the neuter character was the one who resembled the false prophet of Revelation 13, Green also believed that the character, he who now withholds, is implicated in 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 9, and thereby capable of power and signs and lying wonders, and with all unrighteous deception among them that perish. Bear in mind, he who now withholds is also the direct reason for the rise of the Antichrist, in my view, he who now withholds more closely resembles Revelation 13's false prophet, as well as the false prophets in Matthew 24, 24, which also garner support for the false Christ via deception and signs. Being that Matthew 24, verse 15 makes a direct reference to Daniel 11, indicates comparative similarities in both passages. So Daniel 11:23 says, quote, and after the league made with him, Antiochus, shall work deceitfully, for he shall come up and shall become strong with a small people. End quote. In Daniel 11, verse 21, Antiochus for Epiphanes usurps the throne through deceit, since his nephew was supposed to be next in line. The previous verse indicates Antiochus killed his nephew and married Laodice for power. It is because of this league that Antiochus gains and increases in power, and the rightful heir and the Jewish high priest at the time, priest Prince Ananias III, are both overthrown and killed. It likely would have taken a small league to get this accomplished. Though the deification of the false prophet, which is language such as using signs and wonders, is not present in pre-Christian passages, the deceit and insurrection undoubtedly are. The fact that this league's actions directly resulted in Antiochus's rise to power flows right in line with that of he who now withholds. Now that the deeper understanding of the three characters is secured, we see that not only are they working together against true believers, the strategies in all four passages line up in the sense that it took three conspirators to work, a false prophet or league, an antichrist or dictator, and a sacrilegious system or abomination. 
I shall now shift the perspective to the conspiracy of these three characters. The pericope has done more than identify three mere characters, but also a conspiracy, supported by at least three other passages of scripture and relative archaeological history. This historical intertextuality cannot be glazed over, as it carries with it a critical implication. It is most likely that the accounts of Revelation 13 and the pericope pulled information from both Daniel 11 and Jesus' account in Matthew 24, but this is not what makes the critical implication. Jesus used Daniel as the basis for his own account. These four passages are more than merely comparative. They are related, at least by precedent. It is quite possible that the implications of the accounts of Revelation 13 and the pericope go further than the author's immediate intentions just by right of the fact that Jesus made an intentional through-line from Daniel to the eschaton. Revelation 13 and the pericope, therefore, must, to some degree, yield to the superior intention, which is that as the Antichrist comes to be in Daniel, any other Antichrist reference must imply the same rise to power. So let us look at the larger context of Daniel to understand this critical implication. Antiochus did not just come out of thin air. Antiochus came to power because of a series of dictatorships that preceded him, starting with the breakup of the world kingdom of the dictator Alexander the Great. Since the Antichrist is a spirit and not one sole person, it must be a multi-generational, autocratic system, a series of dictators seeking specifically world power, the Ptolemies, the Seleucids, the Greeks, and eventually the Antichrist. Scripture is historically or archaeologically restricted to the experience of the ancient Middle East. Today, what is defined as world power now involves all seven continents, making the Antichrist's quest for world power literal and not symbolic. To achieve global power, the Antichrist conspiracy must survive multiple practice rounds of improving autocratic rises until a final culmination results in an authoritarian attempt that throws the entire globe out of order, not just one country or continent. Ruth Ben-Jiat, award-winning author of Strongman, Mussolini to the Present, says that as opposed to the ancient strongman of Paul's day, the modern strongman finds weaknesses in democracies, dealing with political vulnerabilities or failures, and hijacks the system, rigging the powers in place so that they can stay in power. Why go through the effort of taking countries by force of war when you can convince them to willingly hand over their freedom instead? Such a criminal enterprise requires an antichrist conspiracy. But what democracy in today's world has technical and or literal world power? Often, the office of the President of the United States of America is referred to as leader of the free world. Imagine if a dictator was elected president, but in his first term failed to consolidate power to stop future elections, and then legally lost re-election. Now imagine if said dictator found himself campaigning for re-election, now being motivated to avoid prison due to a flurry of pending trials and investigations to hold him accountable for insurrection. I say imagine to remain hypothetical because my burden is yet to demonstrate that world order as we knew it has been irreparably altered by a spirit of lawlessness. World order or international order is the norms affected by relations between world actors. Such norms include, but are not limited to, international alliance, health, polity, education, economy, and climate. 
If any of these facets go away or are critically impaired, world order could be at risk of paradigmatic devolution. Let us finally examine these facets of world order over the course of the 45th American presidency. Award-winning journalist Philip Rucker and Carol Lennick co-authored I Alone Can Fix It, Donald J. Trump's Catastrophic Final Year, wherein they discovered Mr. Trump intentionally withheld, downplayed, and corrupted critical life-saving information ahead of the Chinese epidemic in late 2019. Furthermore, Trump intentionally dismantled and or sowed doubt into life-saving organizations and relative figureheads ahead of the World Health Organization declaring the coronavirus outbreak a global pandemic. In 2020, the world virtually came to a screeching halt to weather the pandemic through the winter, and the economy crashed on a global scale. Although the American economy has recuperated and Bidenomics has given it high marks in all critical areas, many fear uncertainty in the future, hanging between suspense and fear of another recession. Millions of lives were lost, globally, due to brazen poor leadership of the 45th administration during the critical winter 2019 period. Now called COVID-19, the virus continues to defy groundbreaking research and medical intervention, even producing a new, even more aggressive variant as recent as August 2023, with the threat of another deadly winter. Global economy and health recovered, but they will never again be the same, not because of a failed virtuous attempt to rectify failures, but rather because of brazen lawlessness. As the dubbed summer surge was getting underway in 2020, Speaker Nancy Pelosi at the time and Senator Adam Schiff discovered Trump had hidden Russian interference into the then-upcoming 2020 election from the American public and sought to rectify the problem, but Trump withstood them with fierce political retaliation. That Trump had already been investigated and impeached because of the Mueller probe and pulled America out of the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, or NATO, made the Trump-Russia collusion sound all the more dangerous to sober political scientists who were wary at the time. Trump legally lost his bid and, quote, took advantage of the violence, end quote, mounting against the United States Capitol on January 6, 2021, to ultimately stop the lawful congressional proceeding to certify America's state-certified votes. The Hague's prosecutor, Jack Smith, demonstrated in his federal indictment against Mr. Trump for attempting to defraud the United States that his taking advantage of the violence that day amounted to armed robbery against the American people. Mainstream news is now casting the 2024 election race as boiling down to an incumbent running for president and a disgraced, twice-impeached candidate running from prison. In late February 2022, Vladimir Putin invaded Ukraine with a death threat ultimatum, marry me or I will kill you. To this day, the war drags on, slowly and painfully, as the war takes a turn into yet another painful winter. Experts are beginning to question the motivation behind Putin's timing of his invasion. If Mr. Trump wins re-election, likely support to Ukraine will be cut off and America pulled out of NATO again. If so, Putin may gain the upper hand and will likely defeat a democracy for the second time in his career. Putin may try to form an alliance with the re-elected Trump to help him evade justice, indirectly gaining shadow access to the POTUS office. 
This possibility began to develop after the surprise FBI raid on Trump's Florida residence, exposing his violation of America's most top-secret national documents. Even if Trump legally loses his bid again, Pandora's box has already been cracked. Many dark futures are not only imaginable, but quite possible. And global alliance, whether democracy survives or not, will never be the same again because of brazen lawlessness. It was so gradual, it was hard to see definitively, but over the course of the American experiment, the Grand Old Party has become a fascist-leaning, anocratic party. Intelligence and foreign policy analyst Malcolm Nance observed a rather dark outlook amongst far right-wing conservatives. Quote, Conservative American politicians in the post-9-11 world admired President Vladimir Putin's kill-them-all attitude in Chechnya. In 2002, Putin authored an attack that allowed the Russian special forces to use a highly lethal knockout gas to overpower the terrorists. However, this unusual method of attack resulted in the death of 202 hostages by the gas. Only four hostages were killed at the hands of the terrorists. Two years later, Chechen terrorists would lay siege to a school in the Russian village of Beslan and conduct another suicide hostage barricade. They took over 1,100 hostages, mainly parents, and 777 children attending the first day of a school celebration. Putin ordered the army to assault the compound, even though it was clear suicide explosives were rigged everywhere. Bizarre tactics were used, including having tanks fire their main guns directly into the buildings without regard to the safety of the hostages. In the end, the massacre at the school would kill 334 parents and 138 children, most of whom burned to death after the army forbade that fires they had started be extinguished. Putin's utter ruthlessness was widely admired by American conservatives. As a counterterrorism professional studying these incidents, I often spoke to U.S. Army Special Forces team members, Navy SEALs, and FBI agents while practicing at the Quantico Shooting Club and found many had starry-eyed admiration for how the Russians had crushed the terrorists without regard for loss of innocent life. They would all talk about the horrible massacre at Beslan and how the Russians did not care for anything other than killing the terrorists. A number of military and police quote-unquote, experts, launched new careers by lecturing around the country at conservative forums about the two hostage barricades at Beslan. The consensus from these peers was that America needed to be equally as ruthless. To many American conservatives, Putin's resolve was a sign of a leader they could follow. End quote. Even if healthy conservatism survives this, both at the national and global levels, polity will never again be the same as it has been irreparably compromised by brazen lawlessness. Across the nation, particularly in hard-right states, African-American history and the history of marginalized persons is under attack. Ben Jiat identifies the legislative calls for book banning a fascist strongman propaganda tactic. Some authentic historical facts are being relabeled as anti-American because it makes children, quote-unquote, hate America. Even as the Florida governor has made claims of indoctrination against African-American or otherwise diverse history in America, his endorsement of Prager University steps on his own argument, as it publicly claims to indoctrinate children against left-leaning political ideologies. For instance, in a report by MSNBC anchor Alex Wagner, 
Prager created a video for children with a character identified as Christopher Columbus, making statements such as, quote, slavery was better than death, end quote. Both parents and students have pushed back against the legislature across states. However, Wagner also explains that the Florida governor persists that slavery had benefits by providing skills for later on in life. Bear in mind, all the discriminatory bans against information and education are thus far considered Trumpist acts, which fall in line with his racist views and his own administration's racist laws. Though national politics has decried the stunt, education has been paradigmatically wounded by brazen lawlessness. Since the Dobbs decision of the Supreme Court of the United States, pregnancy-related deaths and irreparable injuries have skyrocketed, along with other smaller consequential statistics. This is due to overly broad language in legislation that does not differentiate miscarriages, for which the medical term is spontaneous abortion, from elective abortions, of which only a small percentage qualify as an abuse of the healthcare system. About a million abortions occur in the United States each year. Of these, 80% are miscarriages, implying that 80% of women need reproductive health care as a life-saving treatment measure to remove a baby that is already dead. Even of the remaining 15-20% to 20% of annual elective abortions, most of those are due to crime, such as molestation and sexual assault. Only a rare fragment of patients each year are, or ought to be, the intended target of this anti-abortion legislation. But health care has been irreparably harmed due to the lawless attempt at using a political and or religious solution to resolve a medical problem. Finally, Ben Giot says that strongmen often propagandize reality, as they often struggle to maintain necessary funding and or the popular vote, which explains the denial of climate change in rightist sectors. Even while global warming has now been officially promoted to global boiling by climate leaders and experts, fascist-leaning political heads and candidates alike follow the rhetoric of lawless figureheads to boost their polling, which has resulted in irreparably harmful anti-climate legislation, catalyzing the inevitable. At this point, it would not be out of place to take St. Peter's eschatological warning as a consequence of this very brazen lawlessness. World Order consisting of international alliance, health and health care, polity, education, economy, and climate have all been irreparably wounded, not only stemming from the same lawless spirit, but also the same former president, Mr. Trump. With this proven thesis, I will present a concise exegetical summary. This will conclude the first half of this presentation. All Things Considered the pericope conveys that the rise of the Antichrist and his political apostasia are required to occur before the perusia, the second coming of Christ. He who now withholds will facilitate the revelation or rise of the Antichrist and his apostasia via what withholds? An extremist propaganda campaign. Honer, Green, and Fee all agree Antichrist events will be very visible and will depend on human participation. Though the spirit of lawlessness is demonic and of Satan, the Antichrist will aim to impact the entire world, not just the church. However, the Antichrist, in an attempt to boost his public appeal, will use the image of God and the beliefs of Christ to justify and or falsely represent his agenda, hence a national political heist of white Christian nationalism. 
The Antichrist conspiracy will therefore use a dictator with the spirit of lawlessness in him to act as a total authority over the law, a team of co-conspirators peddling false propaganda to garner money, and a white Christian nationalist political climate to normalize and popularize the tribalist nature of the dictator as he is prone to react impulsively to wars that do not actually exist. The Antichrist may be a spirit, but it is still inevitable, according to Daniel, Jesus, and Paul's eschatological accounts, and the Antichrist conspiracy will manifest itself in a very public way, which will depend on human participation, observation, and veneration. It is therefore not the job of the Church to stop the rise of the Antichrist, but that does not abdicate the Church from the responsibility of continuing to represent the true image of Christ, which will be in direct opposition to that of the Antichrist. Regarding Matthew 24, verses 4-12, through 12, I find it interesting that as Jesus was talking about the Antichrist, the literal sign of doomsday, his primary concern was the mental and emotional state of people. I would have thought that Jesus would have talked about war and conflict, but those are the very things he downplays. Instead, he highlights deceptive and manipulative people, the coldness and apathy of people's hearts, and the systematic escalation or evident promotion of such evil virtues to the point where political and cultural temperature boil up towards something that looks like a civil war. Jesus was trying to highlight that the Antichrist doesn't really care about nation against nation as much as it does about neighbor against neighbor, especially since Jesus issued a commandment requiring us to love our neighbor. The Antichrist will facilitate his own exposure and ascent to power, but what I am calling the Church to do is to expose the consequential human movement in response to the Antichrist conspiracy. Jesus said the Antichrist conspiracy would play out, but then people groups would begin to turn against people groups by themselves, and God's true Church would be one of those targets. This cause-effect reaction is called the lone wolf reaction, where dictator supporters are emboldened to replicate behaviors and characteristics of their dictator without being given direct instructions. In order for the church to effectively combat organized and solo lone wolf reaction, we must have the difference between the character of the Antichrist and that of Christ firmly secured. Using Philippians 2, verses 2 through 11, I will therefore contrast the Antichrist and Christ. There are ways that truly appear to be of God, but their only outcome is of the devil. The Antichrist conspiracy is one of those ways. Scripture says the Antichrist would deceive, not outright lie. Deceit and lying are not the same. Deceit requires telling the truth first. That's why it's harder to detect a deception than a lie. The attraction of the Antichrist is deceptive, and if one is not vigilant and mistakes the Antichrist for God, the longer he or she worships the Antichrist, the less like Jesus they become, and the more like the devil they will become. Antichrist Understanding the Antichrist and being able to identify it in real life are two different tasks. How can one know that they have identified an Antichrist? Based on the exegetical analysis, you need one, a false Christ or person who alleges to represent Christ yet stands against Christ-like lifestyle and beliefs, two, a false prophet or disinformation campaign peddling Antichrist rhetoric, and three, 
an abomination, or an informational echo chamber to safely harbor Antichrist rhetoric away from effective and sound doctrine of Christ. The Antichrist conspiracy follows a cult-like practice of isolating its followers away from sound counterarguments, reality, and the truth. Though cultish, the mechanism itself is still fascist, so there usually will be no explicit instructions to avoid certain news, information, media, religious, or scholastic outlets. Instead, the Antichrist will undermine the credibility and reliability of said outlets, reality, or even the truth itself, and effectively convince Antichrist followers to abandon them independently. The Antichrist conspiracy is all about deception, arrogance, and hatred. In Philippians 2, starting at verse 3, strife and vainglory are transliterated faction and deceit, respectively, according to the Strong's Concordance. Just because Jesus puts a difference between that which is holy and unholy does not mean that he sets people groups against one another, nor does he authorize some kind of persecution, violence, or civil war on the unholy. I will use the phrase religious logic to mean the use of scripture alone to develop relative conclusions in reality, whether said scripture be rightly or wrongly interpreted. There is one type of religious logic which is responsible for the religious fallacy regarding divine vengeance, such as the likes of 1 Samuel 15 verses 1 to 3. This passage appears to show God giving the children of Israel a genocidal order. It is Antichrist to suggest that because God can execute genocide, that it is okay for the righteous to do the same against their own perceived enemies. There is a reason we do not refer to soldiers in lawful combat or judges which render death penalties as murderers. Rank or position does change the name of the action taken. Furthermore, there is a reason people do not wilt when mistreated, and plants do not cry when mistreated. The hierarchy of species does change the name of the action taken. God is not only all just, but He is also Lord of Lords. Whereas we have a Supreme Court of ceremonial representatives of justice, God is justice. Whereas the vocation of judge is what some people do, judge is who God is. When humans commit mass murder, it is genocide. However, if God has made such an order from his lofty courts, it is called judgment, and the two are not to be conflated. It is sacrilege and typical of the nature of what withholds. Philippians 2 verse 4 says the Antichrist is entirely selfish. The Antichrist conspiracy will therefore easily sacrifice members of its own base or team to benefit itself. Philippians 2, verses 7 to 8, imply the Antichrist is boastful and lawless before God and man. The Antichrist will be entangled in legal woes because the same spirit of lawlessness that defies the law of God defies that of man as well. The next verse implies that whereas God exalts Christ, the Antichrist exalts himself. The Antichrist will demonstrate narcissistic and grandiose traits because the only human logic that will be able to carry out Antichrist conspiracy without any reservation is one with a dysfunctional mental health condition. That is, to the undiagnosed or diagnosed narcissist, the Antichrist conspiracy seems perfectly logical and legal, or otherwise should be. Christ Jesus Christ, in stark contrast, is all about truth, self-giving love, and justice. Philippians 2 verse 2 implies the mind that is in Christ in verses 5 and 6. 
As Jesus was one with God while maintaining his own individual personhood, he expects the different parts of the church to be one, while allowing each part to be thusly unique. The Antichrist wants to set members of the body against one another, but Christ wants all to be of one accord. But Christ wants us all to be of one accord. Therefore, any attempt to enforce God's law at the expense of the diverse oneness of the church is inappropriate at best. For example, excommunicating all pro-choice members from the church as an attempt to uphold the sanctity of life is discriminatory and unchristlike. Verse 3 implies Christ is not contentious or conceited like the Antichrist dictator. Christ does not tear apart the body just to make himself seem better by comparison. Nor does Christ sacrifice his own for his personal advantage, as verse 4 implies. Christ willingly gave his entire life that we might be free from the consequence of sin and death. Not only is he giving, but he is self-giving out of his overabundant love. For verses 7 to 8 say, He made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and that he humbled himself and became obedient unto death. Therefore, even if it cost us a great deal, such as our political candidate of choice, position or influence, funding, career, or even our religious ideals, we must, as the true church, give of ourselves to serve those who are suffering, not those who are oppressing. An example is the state of the evangelical church in America, which has been identified by some experts and religious leaders as a political cult and no longer a Christian denomination because it made deals with lawless political extremists in order to guarantee religious ideals being legislated into democratic law. This should not have happened and is the core of the lone wolf response to the Antichrist conspiracy, upon which I will elaborate in the next section. Proposal to the Church The Antichrist has become effective on four major fronts of American democracy. Political, legislative, judicial, and religious fronts. By setting off lone wolf reactions to each of these, both in the unelected constituency and in the elected government body. Though each lone wolf reaction is relatively independent of one another, they are all surprisingly of the same white Christian nationalism. The Church must therefore resist each of these fronts effectively to combat the independent Antichrist movement as a result of the Antichrist conspiracy, already showing visible signs throughout the world in various ways. On the political front, white Christian nationalism has increased its appeal to the mainstream to the point U.S. Homeland Security has named it the current top domestic terrorist threat. In addition to increasing its appeal, white Christian nationalism has also increased a general sense of fear even on a social level, so that those who would speak out against it are afraid to, knowing what kind of retaliatory backlash white Christian nationalism is capable of. Christians Against Christian Nationalism, or CACN, is a grassroots movement founded by Amanda Tyler after the January 6 insurrection. The Church, regardless of denomination, needs to support CACN unanimously to effectively deal with the Antichrist movement on the political front. Despite the separation of church and state, religion and politics are often neighbors, and the church and state continue to have a profound direct impact upon one another, positively and or negatively. When the church truly bands together, the fearful voices will gain courage to speak out, and those who have been deceived and deluded by white Christian nationalist appeal might still be swayed by their home churches, finally being able to infiltrate as a voice of reason to the most isolated followers. CACN needs funding, 
volunteers, petitions, and large turnout events to effectively pressure Congress to act against white Christian nationalism in America. Law and order are interdependent forces of American democracy, and it is almost impossible to address one without the other. Therefore, on the legislative and judicial fronts, the Church must take its hand and purse out of the justice system and repent to God. White Christian nationalism has infiltrated the Church up to the highest levels of leadership, tempting them to bribe the courts in their favor, not caring that their own brothers and sisters in Christ are among those they legally target, because they have trusted in the white Christian nationalist method of punishing the unjust at the expense of the just. The bribing and purchasing of judges and justices by major church leaders and denominations is public evidence. It is antichrist and legalistically bloodthirsty to enforce religious laws like the sanctity of life or the sanctity of marriage by breaking other religious laws like the love of God and the love of neighbor. The myth that the law is what makes people holy has been long debunked starting with scripture. The end goal of the missionary evangelistic strategy ought not to be making people holy because only God can do that but rather making the gospel and the love of God known to every nation, culture, religion, and tribe. As long as the church is paying the justice branch under the table to serve its religious needs, the church itself is also corrupt, and the Antichrist objective is met. Bear in mind, John 17.12, spoken by Jesus in his holy hour of grief, used the phrase, son of perdition, to name Judas, the disciple, who tried to use legal force to get Jesus to manifest his desired political agenda. Legislating the gospel into law is not evangelism, nor is it missio dei. Forcing a religion on anyone is quite literally the definition of religious persecution. On the religious front, lastly, the church must self-correct through a strategy I call theological activism. Whereas human and civil rights activism applies political pressure on leaders to manifest change, theological activism joins the hands of religion and politics to affect change in the communities. And in this case, the church is the community that needs change. Where was Christian nationalism born? Gerald L.K. Smith, who founded white Christian nationalism, was a Christian preacher. White Christian nationalism was not born in a cult or coven. It was born in the altars and pews of Christian churches. The reason American politics has been so infected by white Christian nationalism is because Christian churches transmitted the virus that the gospel of grace was designed to contort a diverse world into some sort of divine uniformity, which mainly resembled the white man's idea of being saved anyway. American, white, and Christian. To effectively take the gospel to all the world, we are going to have to get better at understanding the world, the way the world is. Starting at the local districts, at all levels of the body of Christ, from layman upward, the church must become more inclusive, diverse, and equitable. The triune image of God is quite literally diverse and yet equal. We must, as the church and individual believers, strive to be the very same. The gospel of Jesus is designed to be expansive. Quote, the focus on Christ as spirit baptizer opens Christ up to an ever-expanding hospitality of faith and life. Michael Welker says this, 
Indeed, the life of the resurrected one who constitutes his post-Easter body through the various gifts of the Spirit and in the creative interplay of its members in order to make his presence known in the world simply cannot be grasped without a multicontextual approach. Taking the exalted Christ, who incorporates a diversity of others into his life by imparting the Spirit, implies a multicontextual turn in Christological method not one that is content with simply speaking about how we are to live in a pluralistic societies, how plurality is on the rise, or how we are to live in the processes of pluralization. No abstract pluralism detached from the exalted Christ will do. Jesus' statement in John 14:2 that his Father's house has many rooms, has implications for Christological method. A point of departure for the Christological method in Jesus as the spirit baptizer will take this insight seriously. Quote. There are three main types of Christian extremism in the United States Christian supremacy, Christo fascism, and white Christian nationalism. The oldest is Christo fascism, which is Christian discrimination and violence, born of a nihilistic outburst in World War II, followed by white Christian nationalism invented by losing candidate Gerald L. K. Smith in 1942, and finally Christian supremacy, an idea that Christianity is the morally superior or the only good or correct religion, which is a more recent consequence of the previous two. The most prominent and problematic form is white Christian nationalism, as it generally contains or influences either or both of the other two. I will therefore focus on white Christian nationalism in America and its impact on democracy worldwide. White Christian nationalism is a myth that America was founded as a Christian nation with Christian principles and goals, and that it should stay that way. Some of those alleged Christian principles and goals included the enslavement of non-white people and the legal and moral justification of white domestic terrorism in America. The 1971 Treaty of Tripoli states, quote, the government of the United States is not in any sense founded on the Christian religion, end quote. The treaty was then ratified six years later. After the failed campaign of Smith, white Christian nationalism ultimately died down, but with the election of President Barack Obama, it surged in America like never before. Seemingly supercharged by the election of an African-American man to the office of leader of the free world, deception, arrogance, and hatred seem to wake up in all four corners of the earth at once, bringing us to the current irreparable shift in world order today. The spirit of lawlessness, or Antichrist, functions most optimally in an authoritarian or fascist government, which historically has shown high tendency of antisocial traits and inevitably driven toward genocide. Similar to fascist outbursts or even grief, genocide always happens in relatively predictable stages. Classism, symbolism, discrimination, dehumanization, organization, polarization, preparation, persecution, extermination, and denial. George H. Stanton, founder of the Genocide Watch, developed the policy model known as the Ten Stages of Genocide. In the denial phase, technically an admission of guilt, the oppressor conveys to any outside authorities that any violence done to the oppressed group was either legal or their own fault. Meanwhile, the oppressor destroys any evidence and silences any whistleblowers who could implicate them in any court of law. Currently, the United States is considered to be in the seventh stage, preparation, as evidenced by prejudice legislation, 
oligarchy, supercharged politics, and gun overinfestation. This triangulation of law, money, and gun overinfestation, or any other means of war, is key for the Eighth Genocide phase and is a principal step in the authoritarian, fascist playbook. A key objective of an authoritarian is to take democracy and make it look so bad to those who live in a system of democracy that they willingly accept to live in an autocratic state. The tactic of the Antichrist is no different. It deceives by penalizing and criminalizing human autonomy so badly until yielding to authoritarian theocracy seems like the better option. This may help explain why many dictators shared the Christian Orthodox or otherwise Abrahamic faith and even convinced the Church to financially and or politically support their genocidal efforts, such as Stalin, Hitler, Putin, Netanyahu, and Trump. The desire to exterminate the unrighteous at the expense of the righteous is the legalistic drive of the Antichrist, and this is why it has always appealed to the religious right for centuries, but also its intentions always tend toward mass oppression and or genocide. It is the attempt to use the law as a justification for divine evil. With the law being used as a false substitute for righteousness, the world becomes inimicus dei instead of missio dei and any believers who provide ministerial aid become an assumed casualty of holy war led by a quote-unquote God who must be intolerant and distant in order to be holy. And to win this false holy war, white Christian nationalism uses the same triangulating power play of the Antichrist conspiracy, law, money, and guns or war. History has warned us before that this kind of dark war machine does not let anyone win in the end. In 2018, Jason Daly of the Smithsonian Magazine wrote, quote, Aspects of our modern politics reminded University of California historian Edward Watts of the last century of the Roman Republic, roughly 130 B.C. to 27 B.C. Watts chronicled the ways the Republic, with a population once devoted to national service and personal honor, was torn to shreds by growing wealth inequality, partisan gridlock, political violence, and pandering politicians, and argues that the people of Rome chose to let their democracy die by not protecting their political institutions, eventually turning to the perceived stability of an emperor instead of facing the continued violence of an unstable and degraded republic. Political messaging during the 2018 midterm elections hinged on many of these exact topics. Though he does not directly compare and contrast Rome with the United States, Watts says that what took place in Rome is a lesson for all modern republics. Above all else, the Roman Republic teaches the citizens of its modern descendants the incredible dangers that come along with condoning political obstruction and courting political violence, he writes. Roman history could not more clearly show that, when citizens look away as their leaders engage in these corrosive behaviors, their republic is in mortal danger. End quote. To add to Watts's observations, consider this stanza from the poet Lucan, who wrote of that very war between Caesar and Pompey. I sing of a war, worse than civil war, of war fought between kinsmen over Pharsalia's plains, of wickedness deemed justice of how a powerful people turned their own right hands against themselves, of strife within families. What madness, my countrymen! How wild that slaughter! If Rome then had such a love for war, let her yet bring the whole earth under her rule before committing suicide. She has never yet lacked enemies. 
Watts noticed the same triangulation of power lead to the downfall of the Roman Republic. War instead of guns, law, or power, and money. And Lucan could see that this authoritarian triangulation would lead only to one thing, the self-destruction of the hapless nation who was tempted by its appeal in the first place. An indomitable system that destroys everything unrighteous seems appealing until it runs out of enemies to destroy, and you're next. The sad truth is, many Antichrist followers genuinely love their country and God. They just love power more, and the Antichrist is counting on that love of power to outweigh love of God and neighbor. The Antichrist is betting on the church, violating the law to love neighbor as self, to justify destroying said neighbor because they differ in values or views. Seeing that all the law hinges on these two, love of God and neighbor, any violation of these two laws to, quote-unquote, uphold another religious view or law is equivalent to violating all the law and the prophets. The Antichrist wants to watch us wage invented wars upon one another and shred each other apart. But God wants us to build each other up in love. The Antichrist values money over people and deceives the church through luxurious schemes and bribes. But God wants his believers to depend on him for strength and provision and not live by bread alone. The Antichrist believes law is more powerful than God, therefore it tempts the church away by promising Christianity will be legislated into law under threat of enforcement. But God wants his son accepted as freely as he gave him for us. Let the true church of God, therefore, not get its way or religious advantage by any means necessary, for that is lawless but rather give the world the true image of God by any means necessary, because that is self-giving, true, and just.